we are really on the brink of a lot of things prophetically breaking forth that the Bible has predicted long ago. And we're on the precipice of a real shaking in our world. But you know what? We're not to be afraid, as I shared Sunday in my message. We're not to be afraid. But what are we to be doing? Looking up. Why? Because our redemption. Come on, children of God. All right. So I'm going to pray that God opens up our eyes tonight and our hearts and our ears. And Father, we just thank you for ears to hear and eyes to see what the Lord intended when he gave the Apostle John this revelation. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you will give us understanding hearts, that we will see what you see. And Lord, you will, in hearing it and understanding this, we will be prepared not only for the coming of the Lord, but for tough times happening in this world. That we will not be shaken, we will not be moved, but we will be steady and strong and rooted and grounded and moving forward with the gospel of Christ into this dark and iniquitous world. Thank you for it, Lord. Now, will you breathe a prayer? Say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. In Jesus' name, I receive the word. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, hold on to your seats. This is going to rock you tonight. <laughs> All right. Boy, welcome to May in February. I mean, what is this about? I mean, I'll take it because it's cycling weather, and I like cycling, so I'll, I'll take it. Um, so good to see Pastor Corey and Rochelle Smithy here tonight. Stand up, Pastor Corey, you and your beautiful wife, and come on, Rochelle, there we go. And my sweetheart right here looks so pretty in red. There's Kathy. It's so good to see her here tonight. And she is such a fighter, and I appreciate that in her. And then Jesse finally shows up. We talked about you. You're late. You missed it. Sorry. All right. If you have your book with you, this, this does uh, double as a companion study guide. Uh, we are on page 33. If, if you're following along in the book, if you don't have the book, you should. But if you don't have it, uh, tonight I'm going to be signing up books one last time, unless we have some surge of more people that, that um, plug in and, and want to get it. But I'm going to sign it tonight after the service. So if you don't have one, grab one. It's a great witnessing tool because everybody wants to know. I mean, look around you. Everybody wants to know about the book of Revelation and what's coming because we all know something is up. So grab the book, and we are on page 33. Right down at the very bottom uh, is where we're going to pick up with Revelations 4, verses 6 to 8. But let me do a quick recap. Last time, we covered the first five verses of chapter 4 in the book of Revelation. And we saw John transported by the Spirit into heaven. He had a a vision. He had been seeing all kinds of things coming to the earth. And then a voice came to him in Revelations 4, verse 2, come up here. And he was transported into glory where he began to see some things going on in heaven. Wow, what an experience that would be. What did he see? He saw 24 thrones occupied by 24 elders that represent the redeemed church of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the most sense. 24 elders, 
24 thrones. They represent the church. He also saw the very throne room of God in front of which was a shiny sea that he said, wow, when I looked at it, he didn't say, wow, that's me. He said, when I looked at it, it looked like a sea of glass, placid, calm, reflective, beautiful. To the ancients, glass was a symbol for eternity. So we could say that the, the vision that he had of the, the glass sea, he was saying eternity stretches before the throne room of God, stretches beyond God's throne room. It is an eternal throne. Now in verse 6, we're picking up. The amazed old apostle goes on to describe. Now he, he's, he's looking, he's seeing, he's amazed, he's, he's absolutely blown away. And he, he goes on describing what the Spirit shows him. Verse 6, in the center and around the throne were four living beings. Now, these beings are going to figure heavily into the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So keep them in mind. Look at his description. Steven Spielberg has nothing on the Apostle John. Because these four living beings are covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings is like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. So you got lion, ox, human face, eagle. Each of these living beings had six wings. And their wings were covered all over with eyes. I, I dare you to try to draw this. Because even their wings are covered with eyes inside the wings and out. Now, many readers of the Revelation are thrown by John's descriptions of these beings. But let me just tell you a little bit about Bible study. One of the rules of biblical hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is simply the, the science or the study of interpretation. I believe anybody who's going to teach the Bible ought to be trained in hermeneutics because you are interpreting several different types of literature in the Bible. And boy, some people, you know, you, you hear them, you listen to them, and it doesn't take five minutes to figure out they never took hermeneutics because where they're coming up with what they're coming up with is from some other world. And I don't mean heaven. And I don't mean hell either. I'm not being mean. But one of the rules of biblical hermeneutics is we compare Scripture with Scripture. If you want to understand something that's in the Bible, you'll find an answer to it more times than not somewhere else in the Bible to find harmony and understanding of various Bible passages. That's one of the rules of, of biblical hermeneutics. So with that in mind, we note that the angelic beings John sees have varied personalities reflected in what they look like. And when you look at the rest of the Bible to explain this lion and ox and human face and eagle, the Bible would lead us to understand that the lion represents authority. The ox or the calf represents meekness. The man, the face of a man, represents intelligence. And the flying eagle, transcendent strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles running and not being weary, walking and not fainting. Six wings moving swiftly represents God's couriers or messengers doing His bidding and His will. 
That's the meaning of these four creatures. Now, I think it's very interesting. The Bible is such an amazing book. We have a parallel of John's description of every one of these creatures in each of the four Gospels. Let me show you what I mean. We find that Matthew, in Matthew, the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented as Christ, the Lion of Judah. So there's the lion. In Mark, Jesus is emphasized as the humble servant. There's the ox. In Luke, he's presented as the perfect man. There's the man. And John, his deity is stressed, symbolized by the flying eagle in John's vision. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've got them. Lion and ox and human and eagle. I threw that in for free. Okay? Now John then notices in his vision. He says, whenever the living beings, these four living beings, give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, look what happens. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, you are worthy. Let's read this together, everybody. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist before you created what you please, or because you did. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that line up with evolution? Oh, no. You created, oh God, all things, and they exist because you created them. Now, so we see chapter 4 ending with an incredible worship session. That's why I say, if you don't like worship, don't go to heaven, because in heaven, you're going to be worshiping. So chapter 4 concludes with this breathtaking worship session. Everything in heaven is praising God. That's why we should. And whatever men and angels have or receive from God, what do they do? They will ultimately cast at his feet in praise. Whatever reward we get, whatever crown he might reward us with, we're going to throw it at the feet of Jesus and just worship. Thou art worthy, O Lord. Thou art worthy. Now we're going to look at beginning at chapter 5 in Revelations. I want to call this, I want to call chapter 5 the drama of the scroll. So keep in mind, John is seeing all of these incredible things, these four living creatures, the, 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 you know, the sea-like glass, all of those, the incredible colors he described uh, um, adorning the throne of God. And as we come to chapter 5, the theme can be summed up in these simple words, worthy is the Lamb. Can we say that together? Worthy is the Lamb. That's the theme of chapter 5. As the awesome descriptions of the heavenly scenes continue, John records, quote, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So picture this with me. We've all seen a scroll. It's, it's rolled up, okay? We've seen a scroll just rolled up. Now, what this scroll has is seven seals holding it closed, Okay? Seven seals. We've all had these little, or some of us have these little stamps. These, you, you melt like wax onto an envelope that you're going to send, and you put a little seal into it. Okay? This scroll is sealed with seven things like that. It must be opened seven times. The seal, seven seals must be broken. And the one on the throne is holding it, the scroll. But then a predicament arises, and here's the drama of the scroll. 
There's no one found worthy to open the box and the seals. Not one person in the universe can be found worthy to break those seals. And as if to magnify the reality of what John has already noted, he sees something else. He says, I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one, not in heaven, earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and read it. And John is overwhelmed by this. He's overwhelmed that no one is worthy. It's such a fallen creation. Not one person is worthy to open this mysterious scroll. Not one of God's created beings that are there in glory can do it. And look what he says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. That's why I call it the drama of the scroll. John is broken and weeping. He's weeping. He's wailing. There's no one worthy. What to do? And just when it appears as if there's no solution, one of the 24 elders, a representative of the redeemed church, steps forward and says, stop weeping. Look, and I guess John looks, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. Now, what's the next three words? He is worthy. Let's say it like, we really, like we're all preaching. Ready? He is worthy. What's he worthy to do? Open the scroll and its seven seals, and only him. Only him. With bated breath, John describes what he sees next. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And the implication is clear, everybody. Only Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, is qualified to oversee the end-time judgments found in the mysterious scroll that are about to be released on the world. And Christ appears not as the Lion, but as the slain Lamb of God. What made Him worthy? The slain Lamb of God was worthy to open the scroll, and only him to judge the world. Now, remember when I told you at the beginning that John's revelation presents several sets of sevens, which is the Bible number for completion. The lamb is described here as having seven horns and seven eyes, which represent this, the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. Now, let me explain. Horns in the Bible are always a symbol of power and strength. So Jesus' power is presented as perfect and complete since there's seven of them. The seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, symbolize perfect knowledge, perfect omniscience. He knows everything, he's all-powerful, and he's everywhere at once. For instance, Zechariah 4, verse 10 says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord which travel over all the earth. You know what God's doing right now? He's looking at us. Somebody said to me recently, how in the world can God 
focus on everybody in the world all at once. It doesn't make sense. You say, Jeff, he's looking at us. How can he be looking at us and looking at somebody in China? Let me, let me give you a proposition. If I brought in a 1,000 people and each of them had a needle, and all 1,000 of them were able to surround you at once and all, all of them stick you at once, would you feel every needle? Would you say, oh, I can't feel 10 of those because I've been stuck over here. I don't feel these over here. No, you'd be feeling every little stick because the body feels, listen, the body can feel a million sensations at once. So when there's a billion, a million, millions of believers praying to God, he feels them and hears them all at once because we are his body. You got it? Okay. So it says, when he took the scroll, and I'm going to rush through this because this many verses, we got a lot to cover, but as with chapters four, chapter four, chapter five ends with an incredible worship session. So here's the Lamb of God slain. He's worthy to open the scroll. And look at Verses 8 through 14, when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So the lamb reached out and took it. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. you got to read this with me. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people. For God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. I'll read the rest. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests of our God. You are a priest, dear Christian friend. And they will reign on the earth. And then he says, I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions. Can you imagine this? This is the ultimate choir. Thousands and millions, a vast angelic choir of 100 million, 100 million, I'm going to say that again, 100 million with thousands of thousands more of angels around the throne of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty sevenfold acclamation of praise to the Lamb chorus. Read it with me. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And when I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, read it again, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. If that doesn't give you Holy Ghost bumps, you're not saved. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. Now, chapter 5 has ended, and next, God's awesome judgments begin. Now, listen carefully. Chapters 6 through 19 vividly describe and predict what has always been called the Great Tribulation which occupies 14 of the 22 chapters of the book. So after John has been allowed in chapter 4 and 5 to have these incredible visions, to see the glory and the victory that is in heaven, the beauty of heaven, the eternity of heaven, and and the victory and triumphal condition of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only he can open the scroll. Now he's about to be shown the grim fact of the Great Tribulation. 
It occupies 14 of the 22 chapters of the book. The Great Tribulation has also been called the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It is the climactic hour in God's plan for the ages. The Great Tribulation also contains several sevens. It will last exactly seven years. And during those seven years, God will pour out three sets of judgments, each consisting of seven parts. They are called the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, equaling 21 multiples of seven. We're going to see that during the Great Tribulation, Satan, under God's permissive hand, is allowed to bring his evil forces to the earth with the restraining hand of God no longer withholding his efforts. That's what it's going to show us. The Apostle Paul predicted this very thing. Let me read it to you, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6. Paul writes, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion. That means a falling away or an apostasy against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. Now he's going to describe the Antichrist. Listen, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. That's called the abomination that makes desolate. We get in that uh, in a couple of weeks. Don't you remember, Paul writes, that I told you about all of this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, that is the Antichrist, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. So the Antichrist, Paul is informing us, and so does John, that the Antichrist cannot be manifested, cannot take control of the world like he will one day until God removes his restraining hand. God restrains him. Someone said to me, Jeff, do you think he's on the earth right now? I don't know, but I think it's very possible. But there's a lot more on that in the weeks to come, so I'm just kind of wetting your whistle here a little bit. At this very moment, church, right now, it is God who is holding back the appearance of Antichrist and who is restraining a level of evil that we've never seen. He will not arrive on the scene until God's time allows it. Now, chapter 6 opens with the appearance of the well-known four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horses represent four severe judgments that will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, remember that scroll? We got that scroll. Here it is. I wish I had one, but it's all rolled up. There's seven seals. The first four seals of the seven are the horsemen of the apocalypse. And those four will be broken first. That is what the lamb will release first. And they will be severe. Now, I want to forewarn you. What we're about to read is it, it's very grim. And, and I wish, I, you, know, you know, we think it's kind of cool, four horsemen in the apocalypse and, the, you know, the mark of the beast and 666, but really it's, it's really not cool at all. It's really grim. It's, it's, it's um, somber. It's difficult because this is judgment. It's not a pretty picture, and, and we wish. When I read it, I wish it weren't true. But it is true. Now, before we dive into the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I want to remind you again that when God brings judgment, and he does, everybody knows that, right? If you know that, raise your hand. If you know he brings judgment, 
because, you know, we're, we're so ruined in America, in the West right now, by this sentimental, gooey, unrealistic ideal of love. That love will never judge, love will never discipline, love will tolerate anything and everything, and that's just baloney. That's not love. Our God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment because he is a God of holiness, and he cannot allow sin to go unanswered in his universe. So, let me remind you about that. When God brings judgment, it's always after lengthy calls to repentance mixed with warnings from his prophets. Remember, God gave the people of Noah's day 120 years to repent. Peter tells us that Noah preached that whole time. He preached for over a century, and he didn't have one convert. They weren't interested. They weren't paying attention to the signs. In Lot's day, they had all kinds of warnings. When Judah was taken into Babylon into judgment, I mean, they were warned for over a century. Repent, turn, stop, quit worshiping idols, get out of this. And they refused. And they didn't listen. And they mocked the prophets and beat the prophets and imprisoned the prophets and killed the prophets. But one day the judgment came. Our God will bring judgment. You cannot have a nation and you cannot have a world that slaughters babies. Listen, now I, I know... I didn't come here to preach about abortion, but, but, I, but I'm telling you, I read the Bible. Amen. And when I read my Bible, you take Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, go into the minor prophets, any of them, and all of them talk about shedding innocent blood. So you can't have a nation like America who it has been revealed. It has been put out in front of all of us that not only do they murder children in the womb, but they murder them out of the womb and then sell baby parts. You can't have that and have God to say, oh, well, I love them. No, no. Those the blood of those little babies is crying out to God from the ground. You can't have rampant perversion like America has sanctioned and not have God say, there's going to be a day when your cup of iniquity is full. And the time will come when judgment's released. And what we're reading, this study in the book of Revelation, is just God saying the cup is full. There's nothing more that can be done. It's time to judge. And so I want you to know that when God brings judgment, it's always right. Abraham said, should not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, 25. Peter informs us that during Jesus, many persecutions and abuses at the hands of men Listen to what Peter wrote. He, quote, Jesus never answered back when insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. 1 Peter 2, 23. The psalmist David writes in Psalms 19, verse 9. The judgments, hear that? Judgments of the Lord are true and righteous totally, altogether. So when God judges, it's always right. No matter what we think about it, we're fallen, skewed beings. We, we can't, listen, when God judges, he only does what is right. So let's look at Revelation 6.1. Here's where the judgments begin to roll. 
As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. Now, what is that living being? Remember those four living creatures? The lion, the ox, the face of a man, and the eagle. All right. Now the first one with the face of a lion has just cried out, come. Well, what's he talking to? He's talking to a horse and a rider. And John looks and he says, it says in verse 2, I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and look what it says, gain victory. Now most scholars believe, and I think it's very clear, this is the Antichrist. He will have authority depicted by the crown. But he will conquer as the good guy depicted by the white horse. Roman generals, for instance, rode white horses depicting themselves as conquering heroes, and Antichrist will present the same way. He will come as a, a, a man with an answer, a problem solver, a miracle worker. He will broker the first Middle East peace treaty that every president for umpteen presidents now, has tried to bring about, Antichrist will do it. And the world will herald him as a, as a military, political, financial genius. He'll look like the good guy. And, and a world that has rejected Christ and is walking in delusion, has believed lie after lie, up to this point, will embrace him like the Savior. British historian Arnold Toynbee wrote, by forcing on mankind more and more lethal weapons and at the same time making the whole world more and more interdependent economically, technology has brought mankind to such a degree of stress that we are ripe for deifying any new Caesar that might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. And that's exactly what he'll do. And the world will say, hallelujah, come on, even if I have to give up my freedoms, come on, Help us, save us, rescue us. The rider of the white horse represents the arrival of the man who will become for a brief time the world's conquering hero and ruling Caesar. He's called the Antichrist, the, the, the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition. He'll look noble, he'll look righteous, he'll look gallant. He'll rise quickly, according to Daniel, to a place of prominence and will be hailed a problem-solving genius for brokering that Middle East peace treaty. And, and, and could we not say that right now as we sit here tonight, the problem area of the entire world is the Middle East and Israel, that little spot of land, the size, I don't even think it's as big as New Jersey, but the whole world is focused on it because of the endless conflict that it's causing that is affecting the whole world. And he will rise quickly he will broker a peace treaty, and he will be hailed the one. But he's the devil in disguise. No man in the history of the world will ever have been more demon-possessed than this man. He's not literally the spawn of Satan like Rosemary's baby. He's not, there's not an immaculate conception in an evil sense. But from early on, 
He's demonized. He's influenced by evil. And when he comes into his time, he will become possessed like none other that we've ever seen. He'll make Hitler look like romper room. Alexander the Great, he'll be possessed. And you won't see it until the first three and a half years of the tribulation are over. But more on that later. Then next, the second creature with the face of a calf or the ox cries out. And look what he says. After the lamb breaks the second seal, the second living creature with the attributes of a calf cries out, come. So he's speaking to another horse and another rider. And the horse appears, and it's a red horse. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority. Look what he's given authority to do. Take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24 and Luke 19? Jesus said, they said, Lord, will it be the sign of your coming? He said, there will be wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and earthquakes in many different places, pandemonium, signs in the sky, cosmic chaos. Well, here John is being told by Jesus in this revelation some of the very same things. War. The red horse that follows the white horse testifies to the fact that Antichrist's peace is only temporary. Because if this is the Antichrist on the white horse, what are we looking at war for? Because his peace only lasts three and a half years. For the red horse is the horse of war. During the 20th century, two major world wars engulfed the globe. They were, they were unbelievable, horrible, beyond imagining. Dozens of nations involved. Millions of people lost their life. But listen, church, midway through the Great Tribulation, three and a half years in, the world's going to be plunged into a conflict without parallel. It'll make World War I and II look like warm-up. With the release of this horse, the greatest war in the history of mankind will take place. We've all heard the name, the Battle of Armageddon. It'll take place in the Valley of Megiddo. The Napoleon, I believe, it was Napoleon that looked out over the Valley of Megiddo and said the world could fight here, not knowing the world would fight there. If that war wasn't stopped by the return of Jesus Christ, no flesh should be left alive. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, for then there will be great tribulation, affliction, distress, and oppression such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be again. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would endure and survive. Not one human would survive on the planet if Jesus didn't stop this war. It's his second coming that stops this war. I can't wait to get to that point in this book because when he comes, oh my, Every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes and ethnicities of the world will mourn because of him. And I'm going to love it when we get to see him grab the devil by the nape of the neck and cast him into hell, because that's what he's going to do. Seriously, that's what he's going to do. Then John observes the third living being with the face of a man. He steps up. Verse 5, when the Lamb broke the third seal, can you imagine Jesus? Well, there's seal one, the white horse. Oh, and there went the red horse. He breaks the third seal, and here comes another one now. 
the living being with the face of a man says, come. And when the lamb breaks that seal, I heard the living being say, come. And I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. You imagine going into Kroger? And you go pay for a loaf of Mrs. Barrett's bread, which you worked a whole day for? A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the oil and the wine. Well, what does that mean? Let me explain. The black horse represents famine. Clearly, massive inflation is suggested in this verse if you have to work an entire day to buy a loaf of bread. That's, that's inflation on steroids. John also mentions oil and wine, which are luxuries, not necessities. Oil would represent toiletries, beauty aids, body conditioners. In other words, things you don't have to have, things you just want. The wine corresponds to the liquor that's going to be in abundance. It's possible, and I think it's almost probable, he's describing the total breakdown of a middle class. There will be few rich with the vast majority stricken with famine. Middle class disappeared. I don't know how far I should go tonight, but I want to tell you that our current government has been doing everything they can to destroy the middle class. We're looking more and more at extremes. Today, 1% of the American population has accumulated over 40% of the nation's wealth. This is a sign of the last times. Even now, more than a billion people, billion, not million, are on the brink of starvation worldwide. The reality is that of 180 or so nations around the world, only four, U.S., Canada, France, and Argentina, adequately feed their populace out of 180. I've been to Haiti. I've been to India. And these little children with bloated bellies come up to you, and if you give them a piece of candy, you're God. Starving little children. They have nothing to eat. We, we support missions in Africa and in Haiti. Jay Threadgill feeds 3,500 children a day. We support him. 3,500 children a day who get a meal that you wouldn't even look at twice, but to them, it's survival. Jesus said there will be famines in many places, earthquakes in many places, increasingly so. But after such a horrific war, the red horse, famine will be even worse. So look at the, look at the dominoes here. Antichrist comes, and, and he supposedly brings peace. But after three and a half years, he breaks that peace, and war breaks out, a horrible war. And following that war, famine on a massive scale because of the destruction of that war. Then finally, here comes the fourth seal, broken, and the fourth living creature with the face of an eagle cries out. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come to another horse and rider. And I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death and his companion was the grave. Just made me think of a death metal album cover. 
These two were given authority over one-fourth, I'm going to say it again, one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine, disease, and wild animals. The fourth horseman is called death, rides a pale horse. The Greek uh, phrase or word is hippos chloros, means pale green. We get the word cholera from hippos chloros. The pale horse is plague. It's plague. John is witnessing a stunning, sobering catastrophe. When this fourth horse rides, one-fourth of the earth's population will be wiped out in quick succession. And how's it going to happen? With the sword, war, with hunger, famine, with death, pestilence, and with the beasts of the earth. The beasts of the earth just come along to clean up what all these things have killed. I told you this was grim. But can I give you a good word? Jesus wins in the end. And remember, he always does right. Okay? Now, a perspective. The worst plague in history was the Black Plague. If you ever read about that, and I've read several books about it, it was just an amazing time in Europe, medieval Europe. It killed one-fourth of Europe in the 14th century. Over 25 million died, but you know what? Two-thirds of the infected lived. Think of, just think if it had been a 100% killer of every person. But out of, out of all that were infected, 25 million died, but two-thirds of the infected still lived. It stopped around after a century. So 100 years of the Black Death. Now, John predicts that a plague will come that's going to wipe out one-fourth of not just Europe, but the entire world. Now, I did a little study. As of July 2015, the world population was 7.3 billion. One-fourth of that would be 1 billion 825 million people taken with a plague. It's possible that the pestilence will take the form of germ or biological warfare. That could be. It could even be nuclear. That could be. We don't know. We only know that it does indeed take place, and it's coming. This is why we preach the gospel every time we're up here. That's why we call people to Christ. That's why we're taking the gospel to the nation, and we want to go to the whole world. Because, folks, the time to get saved is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Because for those who continue on and reject God's Son and God's answer, there is a serious judgment coming. All in all, during the release of these dreaded horsemen of the apocalypse, only uh, or one out of every four human beings is, is going to die. One out of four. One out of four will die. Now here's, let me summarize, and we're done. Thus far, John has painted a chilling portrait of the closing of civilization. Keep in mind again, church, that these events are falling on a Christ-rejecting, godless and unrepentant world. You know what has amazed me studying Revelation? Several times, not just once, but several times, in the midst of these terrible judgments, it shows the population of earth shaking its fist at God and blaspheming Him instead of repenting. So you see that, and we're going to read it with our own eyes in the weeks to come. You, you, you see that, and you go, God is just to judge.
because they know that it's God doing these things and they still shake their fist and blaspheme God. So their level of hard-heartedness and iniquity is really difficult to fathom. But thank God there's still time to respond to his amazing grace. I'll tell you what, we're going to shine like a spotlight into this world as long as God gives us strength. Now, while the apostle John might have assumed it couldn't get much worse, it could and it did. Cosmic catastrophes are about to unfold with the last three seals. And we're going to look at that next time. Let's stand together, can we? Now, how many of you can lift your hands and say, thank God I'm saved? (laughs) Amen. Thank God I'm saved. Amen. Thank God I'm saved. And, you know, I I, I shared with you at the beginning, but this, this, Jesus told John, he said, whoever reads this book and does what it says is going to receive a special blessing. So, folks, I know this is grim. It's difficult to read. It's difficult to look at, but it's coming. But you know what? As we read it and study it and understand it, it, God gave it for a reason. He gave it so that we would be primed for his return. He showed it to us so that we would be evangelistic and not just sit around and say, well, you know what? I don't really have a burden for souls. Uh, He gave it to us so that we would burn bright and so that we would be very aware, no matter how it looks, when they say peace and safety, Sudden destruction comes like a woman going into labor pains, and there shall be no escape. So there's a blessing in reading this book. Amen? Can we lift our hands and say, Jesus, thank you, I'm saved. Thank you for the grace that reached out and saved me. Thank you for the grace. And, Lord, we pray over this sin-infested, devil-infested world. That, Lord, there would be a turning to God, that you would grace us at Turning Point and churches all over America and the world. Open doors that are amazing. Open, effectual doors to declare the gospel of God. And we pray that many millions will be swept into the kingdom before this terrible hour of human history. We pray that, Lord, you'll let us be a part. Now, can you just say, Lord, let me be a part of what you do in these last days. Help me to shine into the night in Jesus' name.